The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by AnchorLight. For more information about all of AnchorLight's artistic and creative endeavors, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. Just a quick note that today's episode contains adult content, so please take care when listening. In conjuring up the ideas for episodes for this season and last, I have almost entirely focused on artworks that were controversial in their own time, works that were shocking when they were first exhibited. Marcel Duchamp's Fountain, a manufactured urinal deemed art, Edouard Manet's Olympia, an art historical staple updated scandalously for the bourgeoisie of the 19th century, Artemisia Gentileschi's violent and bloody revenge fantasy, Judith Beheading Holofernes. But with this episode, I wanted to break with tradition, at least a little bit, by talking about one single work of art that was deemed generally fine and basically overlooked from any scandalous standpoint at its birth, and continued to be accepted without debate for decades. But now, right now, in our contemporary moment, there has been an intense debate about this work of art, with many calling for its removal. Contemporary art always seems like it is controversial and really good at getting tongues wagging. But art that's been hanging on the walls of a famed museum for years? That can do a pretty good job of being problematic, too. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. In this episode, we're diving headfirst into the hashtag MeToo and Time's Up movements and throwing some serious sidelong glances at a work by Baltus housed in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. His Therese Dreaming from 1938. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Where is the line between art and pornographic imagery? It's a question that has plagued some for decades, perhaps even centuries, and it's hard to figure out. In 1964, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart famously noted that the difference in something that's obscene and something that's not may be fluid or squishy, but still, it was something he could intuit, perhaps without defining, and with that, he declared, quote, I know it when I see it. Unquote. I love the statement because it's a little bit irreverent, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But what's hard about it is that it puts that squishy line between art and pornography solely on the individual. What's problematic for me might not be problematic for you and vice versa. And that is exactly where we land when dealing with Baltus. Baltus, born Balthazar Klosowski, had that great benefit of being born to two artistic parents in Paris in 1908, right when the city was just exploding with creativity. Think back to our last episode of last season of Art Curious. This is exactly the time period when Picasso broke the mold with his Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. Baltus's Polish parents got in deep with the intellectual and artistic communities in Paris, and so little Balthazar was exposed from the earliest age to the latest and greatest. But then World War I hit, 
and Balthus's parents moved him far away, and he ping-ponged between Switzerland and Germany for the better part of a decade before relocating back to Paris in 1924 at the age of 16 to begin his formal artistic training. There's something a little bit old-fashioned about Baltus's style. It's formal, maybe even a bit stodgy in its lines and colors, light and shadow. But his subject matter is an entirely different story. Though he painted the gamut of things, landscapes, still lifes, what have you, there seems to be one group of subjects that occurs again and again, and it's hard to ignore. Baltus painted a lot of dreamy and dreaming prepubescent girls. And people, especially now, are having a big problem with this, even though Baltus himself has been dead since 2001. At the center of this argument is one specific painting, Therese Dreaming, painted in Paris in 1938. This work, one of many by Baltus using the same model, depicts an interior scene, a homey space, possibly a living room. Therese Blanchard, a neighbor of Baltus, was around 13 when this particular image of her was painted. However, she was the subject, along with her brother Hubert, of many of Baltus's paintings. Here, in Therese Dreaming, she is shown in this living room space sitting on a chair, eyes closed, with one leg perched up on the chair in front of her. That leg perch, by the way, seems to be one of Baltus's signature moves, as quite a number of his works contain this pose. With her hand resting atop her head, her eyes closed, and her skirt unabashedly up, Therese is right there, unaware, and revealing her undergarments to the artist, and thusly to anyone who comes in contact with this painting. Alongside the figure of the young dreaming girl is a cat on the floor lapping up milk. Were it not for that perched leg in the revealing hint of underwear, it would be a pretty standard scene, maybe even a boring one. But Therese's pose makes all the difference here. And though this work has been part of the Met's permanent collection for nigh on 20 years, and has been shown in exhibitions all around the world, both pre- and post-acquisition by the Met, it wasn't until very, very recently that this painting became a real problem. And that's coming up next, right after this break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Anyone who has explored both art and science knows that the two worlds are never far apart. They are constantly inspiring and informing one another. And this has never been so apparent as in the life of Leonardo da Vinci. I recommend checking out a video series that will completely change what you thought you knew about this incredible artist. It's called Leonardo da Vinci and the Italian High Renaissance. And throughout this course, Professor George Bent explores Leonardo's fascinating career, not just his career as a painter, but also as a scientist and an inventor. And he will dive deep not only into the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper, but also Leonardo's inventions that were way beyond their time. Things like tanks, flying machines, submarines. And this course is so full of many fascinating nuggets. So if you ever wanted to learn why Leonardo wrote backwards in his journals, for example, 
George Bent will teach you all the stories behind these really curious and interesting details. Leonardo da Vinci and the Italian High Renaissance comes from The Great Courses, and The Great Courses is an educational media company that was started more than 25 years ago to make learning more accessible. They are currently offering more than 600 in-depth courses as well as a streaming video service, and they are all presented by bright and engaging experts. For a limited time only, you can purchase a digital copy of Leonardo da Vinci and the Italian High Renaissance from The Great Courses for just $44.95. That's a huge savings of $275. But this incredible offer is only available through my special URL. Order Leonardo da Vinci now by going to thegreatcourses.com art. That's thegreatcourses.com art. If you're a regular listener to Art Curious, then you've heard me thank our production partner, Kabunki, for making each of our episodes sound so incredible. They've been with us since the beginning, and now they're here for you too. Need production and editing help for your own podcast? Sure. Full service video for your film or marketing project? You bet. How about original content for your website or campaign? No sweat. Kabunki does it all for video, audio, or whatever your medium. Their award-winning team has the tools and talent to elevate everything you do. Get to know our friends at Kabunki like we do and tell them our curious sent you. Visit kabunki.com. That's K-A-B-O-O-N-K-I.com. Kabunki, a silly name, but superb content. Welcome back to Art Curious. In late 2017, two sisters, Mia Merrill and Anna Zuccaro, visited the Met. While making the rounds of the galleries, they were taken aback by the presence of Therese Dreaming displayed prominently therein. And while some might walk by this painting and pay no or little attention, Merrill and Zuccaro were stunned. They saw this painting as an institution taking the side of what they saw as a pedophilic, over-sexualized representation of a young girl. Within days, Merrill created an online petition to remove the painting from the walls of the Met stating in part, quote, Given the current climate around sexual assault and allegations that have become more public each day, in showcasing this work for the masses without providing any type of clarification, the Met is, perhaps unintentionally, supporting voyeurism and the objectification of children, unquote. Her reference to the current climate is, of course, the one that we are currently living in as I record this and have been living in for the last couple of years filled with powerful movements such as Me Too and Time's Up, movements that value and elevate the stories of women and men who have been victims of sexual assault by various notable people in a variety of industries. Indeed, endemic to society as a whole. These movements have focused on the deplorable actions by people such as Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, and Woody Allen, among many many others. As Merrill continues in her petition, quote, I am not asking for this painting to be censored, destroyed, or never seen again. I am asking the Met to seriously consider the implications of hanging a particular piece of work on their walls, and to be more conscientious in how they contextualize those pieces for the masses. Ultimately, this is a small ask considering how expansive the Metropolitan Museum of Art's collection is. They can easily hang up another painting how overtly sexual the painting is, 
The Met's description of the piece provides no background on Baltus or his reputation. And the current news headlines highlighting a macro issue about the safety and well-being of women of all ages. Unquote. As Merrill made clear, she wasn't looking for retribution or for the destruction of Baltus's offending work. She simply wanted it either removed or moved to a less prominent position, or to be given more information or context, or even just going as far as to putting up a warning. Something along the lines of, some viewers might find this piece offensive or disturbing given Baltus's artistic infatuation with young girls. And Merrill didn't feel like this was an untoward request, and neither did the 11,620-plus people who signed her online petition, just a few hundred short of her goal of 12,000 signatures. Merrill, Zuccaro, and others saw a very deeply rooted connection between the current abuse of power and sexuality and Baltus's infatuation with this young girl that culminated in putting her in a quote-unquote sexually suggestive pose. Merrill's petition had a lot of supporters, but it naturally had a lot of critics, too. The backlash from several parties was extensive. Lauren Elkin, an arts critic and writer, published an opinion piece in the contemporary arts magazine Freeze, claiming that, quote, if we only see abuse when we look at the painting, then somehow the abusers have won, the men have won. Art history is his story, same as it ever was. Our culture is terrified of sexually awakened young girls. Our rush to protect them is sometimes just a bid to protect ourselves from their monstrous nubile desire. By trying to control the way people look at this young girl, we rob her of an interior life. Female sexuality cannot be forever cloistered and footnoted and appended. Sometimes we just have to let it stand or sit awkwardly, no matter how troubling." Unquote. With the context added to the painting, Elkin claimed audiences would be robbed of their own personal connection that they could then forge with Therese. Believe it or not, Negative attention towards Baltus and Therese Dreaming didn't just arise with Merrill and Zuccaro's take in 2017, but nearly three decades earlier. In 1988, Kay Larson, a renowned art critic, had a few choice words about Baltus and his depiction of this young girl. She claimed that separating style from desire is like separating the man from the artist. It's impossible and ultimately useless in the realm of criticism. She felt that artworks like Therese Dreaming are, quote, an anthropological curiosity to which I claim no connection, unquote. These works, Larson explained, seem to be a vessel to universalize the male experience, with no consideration to women or female-identifying people in general. Male critics, she noted, had a habit of examining this work of art in terms of style, completely ignoring the underlying tensions and eroticism that are presented by Baltus. This separation, Larson attested, is a radical amputation, and that the binding force in this equation of style and subject is desire. Ten years later, the Met's associate curator of 20th century art, Sabine Rewald, who is now the Jacques and Natasha Gelman curator of modern art at the Met, had a different take on Baltus. Rewald, in a sort of confusing defense of Baltus, explained in the 1998 Metropolitan Museum Journal that Therese Dreaming was, quote, the epitome of dormant adolescent sexuality, unquote, but then explained that Baltus only cared about structure and form, 
and thus denied any claims of eroticism in his own paintings. This, she concludes later in her analysis, adds to the so-called ambiguity of the pictures. Finishing her thoughts, she settles that, quote, the eroticism of Baltus is ambiguous, implied, and not explicit, seductive, or openly inviting, unquote. Rewald also brings to light many literary and artistic classics influenced by what she calls the Baltus adolescent. Nabokov's infamous Lolita and Robert Benson's Still of the Night are just two examples, while advertisement and media have countless representations of the Baltus model used to sell, attract, and beckon. It would even be easy to believe Baltus had a hand in normalizing adolescent and prepubescent sexuality and eroticism. And who knows, maybe there is some truth to that. So what is the takeaway from all of this? What was the response from the museum after all was said and done? Well, ultimately, the Met refused to remove the painting of Therese, and the museum's PR team released a press statement to back up the controversial decision, writing, quote, The Metropolitan Museum of Art mission is to collect, study, and conserve, and present significant works of art all across times and cultures in order to connect people to creativity, knowledge, and ideas. Moments such as this provide an opportunity for conversation, and visual art is one of the most significant means we have for reflecting on both the past and the present, and encouraging this continuing evolution of existing culture through informed discussion and respect for creative expression. Presenting difficult and provocative ideas is part of a museum's purpose." Unquote. So what side are you on? Many feel that one of the many purposes of a museum is to be a safe space to allow for the type of discourse that Merrill started, which is a line that the Met specifically supports here. However, it's obvious that others feel very differently. And besides the question that began our episode today about that line between art and obscenity or art and pornography, there's another question that comes up with this conversation about Baltus, one that I myself struggle with when I'm looking at a Picasso, for example, and most definitely the troubling pieces of Paul Gauguin, just to name two of a very, very long list. And that question is this. Can we truly ever separate the art from the artist? What many historians agree upon is that, yes, Baltus was at least somewhat perverted, and yes, Therese was probably put in a situation that was inappropriate and even uncomfortable. But does this mean that works of art like this should not be seen? What is more important, the art or the history? It's a tough call. I can say that my own personal opinion is even hard to pin down. As a woman, I don't love Baltus. Never have, and I probably never will. As an art historian, I don't really love his works either, and will probably prefer to study a lot of artists over Baltus, just from my own interest level, although I can totally appreciate his talent and his style. But at the same time, I'm also a museum person. I've been a museum person now for more than a decade, and the pressure to back up every complaint or cry from a visitor by keeping a work of art in the shadows is a real thing everywhere. I feel for the folks at the Met. You want to show your works in your collection, period, and give people enough information and context to go upon, but not too much that you deaden someone's experience by making them feel like they are reading a master's thesis instead of a wall label, or even worse, 
by making a visitor feel like one reading or interpretation is the only right one. If you thought that being a museum curator was all rainbows and beauty, think again, because sometimes it feels like people's whole emotional lives are in our hands. That's a lot to bear. And sadly, it means that someone at some point will be upset. It can feel like a no-win situation, because art, ultimately, is about personal preference and expression. And that's as true for the viewer as it was for the artist. What's bothersome to me may be totally fine for you. What's gorgeous to you might be really ugly to me. So, who decides? Now, there's an interesting coda to this story. As of the recording of this episode, when you search the Mets website for Therese Dreaming, there are three little words that may very well show, or not, the final outcome about this latest iteration of Baltus's drama. There it is, on the Met website, for all to see. The words, not on view. Next time on the Art Curious Podcast, it is our season finale and the very last in our shock art series. And this one, you're really not going to want the kids to listen to it. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Valerie Gonzano. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett and Natalie Broyhill. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. Additional editing help is by Hannah Roberts. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. For more details about our show, including the image mentioned in this episode today, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at artcuriouspod. Check back in two weeks as we finish our exploration of the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in the shocking works of art history.